immense moral capacity. I think this is really the power of the whale at the end of the day. It's not just that it's the largest animal on the face of the planet, but that it coaxes us into a more expansive understanding of our humanity and of our capacity for change. when we talk about animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. In her genius debut book, Fathoms, The World and the Whale, writer Rebecca Giggs introduces readers to blue whales that exhale canopies of vapor so high that their blowholes spout rainbows, to spade-toothed beaked whales that are so rare they've never been seen alive, and to sperm whales whose clinks are louder than the heaviest space rocket ever launched from Earth. In prose so deft it ought to be called poetry, Giggs describes scientific research on how whales shift the chemical makeup of our atmosphere, how they respond to solar storms that migrate vast, unseen geomagnetic mountain ranges, and how a bestiary's worth of fantastic creatures flourishes in whale carcasses as they sink to the ocean floor. Every species is a magic well, E.O. Wilson wrote. The more you draw from it, the more there is to draw. But as Fathoms illuminates, there's more than just mystery and wonder in the well these days. Animals' bodies and lives are polluted with reminders of ourselves. Into these magic wells, we have dumped our plastics and our poisons. As one example, Giggs describes a sperm whale that washed up dead on Spain's southern coast. In its ruptured digestive tract, scientists found an entire flattened greenhouse that once grew wintertime tomatoes, complete with plastic tarps, plastic mulch, hoses, ropes, two flower pots, and a spray canister. The whale had also swallowed an ice cream tub, mattress parts, a carafe, and a coat hanger. And that was just the obvious human refuse. Toxins build up in whale blubber over years, such that the concentration of pollutants in some whale bodies far exceeds that of the environment around them. We have turned the world's largest animals into hazardous waste. Would we know it, Giggs asks the moment when it became too late, when the oceans ceased to be infinite. Whales, as Giggs writes, have always driven humans to new depths of imagination, worldliness, and moral imperative. Through learning about whales, we discover new truths about ourselves. But how do whales experience our changing world? How is the triumph of the Save the Whales movement subverted by what we've done to the whales' environment with our shipping vessels, our fishing gear, our greenhouses, and our greenhouse gases? What can whales teach us about life's possibilities and connectedness? What does realizing our impact on other animals do to our own psyches? In Fathoms, Giggs dives deep into these questions, expanding our imagination about both our moral and physical landscapes. At a time of profound ecological crises, when so many of us are isolated and may feel like our lives are small, Fathoms reminds us that our lives are much more enormous in their impact and much grander in their entanglements with those of other animals than we realize. Rebecca Giggs is a writer from Perth, Australia. Her essays on how people feel toward animals in a time of ecological crisis and technological change have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and other publications. Fathoms is her first book. In the apt words of journalist Ed Young, humanity's relationship with nature has never been more important or vulnerable, and we are truly fortunate that at such a pivotal moment, a writer of Rebecca Giggs's caliber is here to capture every beautiful detail, every aching nuance. She is in a league of her own. Rebecca, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you so much for that generous introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you. Your book opens with an encounter you had with a beached humpback whale in Perth, Australia. The whale becomes quite the local spectacle as it slowly dies over the course of three days. But when you encountered it, it was still very much alive. Will you take us there and describe what you saw? How was the whale dying? What happened to it after it died? And what about this encounter sent you on the journey of writing this book? Yes, so this took place a few years ago. A yearling humpback whale beached not far from my home in Perth. And a yearling is a relatively small whale. It was about 12 metres long. And it had beached up on a sandbar, partially in the water, earlier in the day. 
And then after the efforts of some wildlife officers and others to move it out into the water, it eventually swum back and it stranded a little bit higher up, which made it apparent that this animal was not going to take off into the wilderness, but it was um, going to remain stranded and um, it was clearly suffering. But at the same time that it was suffering, it also drew a great audience down to see it. There were people who bought their small children. There were people who bought dogs. There was a feeling of kind of macabre carnival in the air. And I think as I was standing there in the crowd, I heard a lot of different explanations as to why people think whales strand. So some people told me they thought perhaps this humpback was hungry, um, that it was thin and starving. Some people had a theory that it had been attacked by predators like sharks or killer whales. One person even told me that they thought that whale beachings were connected to falling stars. And so really I started with these varied explanations for whale strandings. And they interested me because they pointed to different ways of understanding causation in the natural world, be that predatory or you know, microbial if the whale was sick or perhaps even cosmological in the form of attachment to falling stars. Later, the book expanded to become much more about the connection that our everyday lives have to vast wildernesses and to the stupendous wildlife that's found there. But in this first scene, in the opening chapter, you know, I really was interested in people's emotional attachments and feelings of grief for the animal. And eventually, as it declined, there was an ongoing debate around whether or not it ought to be euthanized. It turns out to be very difficult to euthanize an animal as large as a whale. But because this particular individual was not very big, there was the option of giving it a lethal injection. But that lethal injection would then have a legacy after the animal had died because it was introducing a kind of poison into the environment. So the whale's body would then have to be taken off to landfill rather than being dragged back out into the ocean. So yeah, this was really the point of inception for the book was um, this encounter with a humpback whale in Perth. In, in Fathoms, you, you explore the question of, of what it means to pollute not just places, but animals. And, and you mentioned the various causes of that people were speculating um, resulted in, in this whale stranding. And, and one of the primary ways that we're impacting animals, although there are many ways even beyond our, our current understanding, is in our, our pollution and the, the ways that we are, are impacting their environments, but also their bodies. You know, the beached humpback whale in Perth was dumped in a landfill, but the whale also was a landfill. What did you learn about how human pollution manifests in whales' bodies? And, and how did your understanding of what pollution is change as a result of your research for this book? Yeah, so I'm a child of the 1980s. So I suppose the place where I put whales in history is as part of the Save the Whales movement. I remember those faded bumper stickers you used to see on the back of cars and to all intents and purposes, I thought because whale numbers were rising, that whales had been effectively saved. But of course, in the 30 or so years since those movements were put in place and since the global moratorium on, on whaling came in, the ocean itself has fundamentally changed. It's changed sonically, it's changed chemically, it's changed because of the amount of trash that's entered the ocean as well. And I think that, you know, I really, throughout the process of writing this book, I came to understand that whales don't just live in the sea. They live in the 21st century. They live in our socio-cultural context and they consume what are essentially the dumped legacies of our manufacturing and our industry. And so, you know, here, here in your introduction, you gave this example of the sperm whale in Spain that had consumed the greenhouse and that this story just leapt out at me from the news at the time that I, I read it and the reason I think that was was because not only had this animal consumed such a vast amount of trash such unique and idiosyncratic objects but here is the icon of 1980s environmental 
devotion, one of the biggest movements, global movements, environmental movements, and it meets the icon of 21st century climate crisis, the greenhouse, which is, of course, the metaphor we've used to describe mm -hmm. the warming earth. And so this animal consuming the greenhouse felt like such an evocative emblem for the collision between, you know, what's happening in the oceans now and the stories we've told ourselves about our ability to benevolently restrain ourselves from over-exploiting a resource in the form of whales. Speaking of greenhouses and greenhouse gases, how do whales impact the climate and how are they being impacted by climate change? Yeah, so this was perhaps the most interesting part of the research um, for this book, was to learn that whales are not only, I suppose, passive victims in relation to their absorption of pollutants from the air and also to changes in temperature in the ocean which have subtly morphed their food webs and the ecologies that they belong to but that whales have also changed the chemical composition of the atmosphere itself. And this is a this is a sort of abstract idea to get your head around. I think the way to think about it is that the atmosphere is connected to the function of the oceans in a very delicate chemical balance. So whales because of where they feed and how they feed, have resulted in greater emissions of oxygen coming out of the oceans. And the reason for that is that the largest animal on the face of the planet exists in a finely tuned balance with some of the smallest organisms on the planet, and that is plankton. So as the whale goes down into the depths to feed, it um, consumes krill and copepods and other small bait fish at depth, but it doesn't defecate down there. It comes up out of pressure and then it defecates at the surface. And that manure is a kind of fertilizer that catalyzes the growth of plankton, which then emit oxygen. And that system is referred by some cetacean scientists as a whale pump. It's effectively the animal moving nutrients up and down in the water column and then those nutrients resulting in a change in the atmosphere. And I think this is increasingly the way that we will come to understand animals in the future is that they're not just you know, of value because of their charisma or because of their sentience, but also because of the ecological functions that they play as well. One of the ways you convey that in the book is to describe a whale fall. When I read books about animals, particularly in preparation for podcasts, I like to highlight things that stick out to me. And this section of the book, much of the entire book actually is just radiantly yellow, but this section in particular is just all yellow in the book. And I'm wondering, will you please read part of that section where you show that whales aren't just impacting ecosystems in this profound ways of shifting nutrients and changing the chemical makeup of the atmosphere, but they also are ecosystems in themselves, even long after they've died? Absolutely. Okay. So this is from the opening chapter of the book. If whales that expire mid-ocean are not washed into the shallows by the wind and tides, their massive bodies eventually sink and simultaneously decompose on the descent. This disintegration is called a whale fall. Afloat at the beginning, they're pecked at by seabirds, fish, swimming crabs and sharks attracted by scent trails to the carcass. Carrion eaters debride the underside of the carcass. In calm weather, ripples divulge the scavenger's thuggish toil, creating the illusion, perhaps, that the dead whale still trembles. This part takes weeks, a month. Over dusk's shift-change hours, daylight creatures rotate with nighttime meat-eaters. Some species of cetacean turn out to be more buoyant than others, Deceased sperm whales will hang off the oil-filled chambers contained in their huge blocky heads at the surface, longer than most, though they are one of the largest and heaviest types of whales. But in time, any whale will go down, 
all the way to the seafloor. A dead whale slips below the depth where epipelagic foragers can feed from it. The whale's mushy body decelerates as it drops and where the pressure compounds, putrefying gases build up in its softening tissues. It drifts past fish that no longer look like anything we might call fish, but resemble instead bottled fireworks, reticulated rigging, and musical instruments turned inside out. The whale enters the abyssopelagic zone. No light has ever shone here for so long as the world has had water. Entering permanent darkness, the whale passes beyond the range of diurnal time. Purblind hagfish slink, jawless, pale as the liberated internal organs of other animals. Jellyfish tie themselves into knots. The only sound is the scrunch of unseen brittle stars eating one another alive. Slowly, it is very cold, hell's gelid analogue on earth. The hagfish rise to meet the carcass and tunnel in, lathering the passages they make with mucus. They absorb nutrients right through their skin. The whale body reaches a point where the buoyancy of its meat and organs is only tethered by the force of its falling bones. Methane is released in minuscule bubbles. The ballooning mass scatters skin and sodden flesh below it, upon which grows a carpet of white worms waving upwards like grass on a grave. Then, sometimes, the entire whale skeleton will suddenly burst through the cloud of its carcass. For a time, the skeleton might stay hitched to the parachute of muscle, a macabre marionette jinking at the spine in the slight currents. Later, it drops, falling quickly to the seafloor, into the plush cemetery of the worms. Gusts of billowing silt roll away. The mantle of the whale's pulpier parts settles over it. Marine snow, anonymous matter, ground to grit in the sun-filtered layers of the sea, sprinkles down ceaselessly. The body is likely to descend and settle far deeper to depths beyond which any living whale will ever see it. Rat tails, sea scuds and other kinds of polychaete worms and eel pouts now appear. No one knows from where. Opportunist octopuses bunt between ribs. Sightless, whiskered troglodytes like ginger tubers burrow into the surrounding sediment, which is blackened with fat and whale oil. From the dark come red streamer creatures that flutter all over. Colourless crabs, their delicate gluttony. Life pops. It's as though the whale were a piñata, cracked open, flinging bright treasures. On the body gather coin-sized mussels, loosened clams, limpets, and crepitating things that live off sulphate. More than 200 different species can occupy the frame of one whale carcass. A pink plumed tube shrinks back into the Gothic column of its name, the Ossidax, Latin for bone devourer. Mouthless and gutless, the Ossidax is nonetheless insatiable. It eats through its feet, which extend like trickling roots into the marrow. The remaining bones of the dead whale on the seafloor are stripped, hollowed, and then they fluff up with flounces of silver white bacteria so that it appears as if the skeleton is draped in downy toweling. There the bones stay, lashed softly by microbes. Decades may pass, a hundred years even, before nothing remains, only a dent that holds the dark darker. Thank you so much for reading that, Rebecca. It's it's such a beautiful and evocative passage. And I, I really love that macabre marionette imagery. It, it's so different from how we usually perceive these strong, self-sufficient creatures. 
And and what I really love about this passage is that it, it totally changes our perception of how these animals impact our world, not only in life, but long after they're gone and the entire underwater realms that rely on them. And what it really illuminates is just how intricate and, and unknown so much of whales' lives are. There's so much unknown about not only the ways in which whales impact the world, but also the ways that they perceive and interact with the world, whether it's um, algal blooms or, or even house cat diseases, as you write about, in ways that we don't fully understand. And one of the most compelling pieces I found in the book was when you wrote about the ways that whales interact even with the cosmos. You, you mentioned earlier that one of the speculations was that a star fall caused the whale beaching. And, you know, that might seem sort of incredible, but what you write about is the ways in which whales and our universe are interconnected in, in terms of solar storms and underwater geomagnetic mountain ranges. Can you describe that phenomenon and, and what you've learned about whale perception and experience? Yes, I, I suspect that this is one of the reasons that whales are such compelling entities across the course of human culture. They are both like us in many ways. They're intelligent animals, they're social, they nurse their young, they potentially even have languages in the way that they communicate. But at the same time, they're utterly unlike us in that they're furnished with senses that are scarcely imaginable. And one of those senses, the theory has it at this point in time, is that whales that migrate as solitary individuals through the open ocean perhaps use magnetic sea marks to direct them. And this is a theory that's supported by a series of whale beachings that took place in 2016. A couple of large sperm whales washed up across the coasts of Europe some in Germany, some in the UK. And they seemed in perfect health, although they died after they'd stranded. So scientists started exploring questions as to why they might have been driven aground. Of course, a lot of people initially thought that it had to do with human activity. Some people pointed to water that had been flushed out of the Fukushima disaster into the Pacific Ocean. Others were concerned about the changing climate and food webs. But one interesting theory, and one that's um, now getting a lot of scientific currency, is that whales are sensitive to magnetic formations on the seafloor. And those waves of magnetism, perhaps best imagined as a kind of invisible mountain range, are formed and reformed by the Earth's magnetosphere, which can in turn be changed by the weather on the surface of the sun. And now we don't ordinarily imagine that the sun has any weather at all. The sun is a superheated cloud of gas and energy. And I think as children, we're taught to imagine it as you know, a, a surfaceless star. But in actual fact, the sun does have subtle seasons that take place over an eight year period. And in some cases, um, it will have a sort of storm that whips up chains of energy off the surface of the sun. And that will send not heat or light, but magnetic ripples through the universe. The only way that we can discern it is by looking at the aurora. So other than using specific instruments, the best way to see a solar storm is to pay attention to the northern lights that are up around the Arctic and also down by Antarctica, because at times of extreme solar weather, those lights are more intense and they also expand towards the equator. And so one theory for why these sperm whales had stranded was that during that period, there was a solar storm. And if it had affected these magnetic formations that the whales use to navigate by, it would have driven them off course. And so they would have believed that they were in the deep North Sea at the point at which they ran aground. I think this is such a stupendous story because it really points to the ways in which nature is not just planetary, but cosmological in its dimensions. And it's also, as I say, on the very outer limit of what it might be possible to imagine 
you know, what must it be like to be furnished with a sense that can apprehend magnetic energy on the face of the planet? It's quite you know, mind-bending to enter into that kind of imagination. One of the other major and horrific in many cases, um, but not necessarily always, in which we're impacting whales' worlds, which you mentioned briefly, is through sound from our shipping tankers and explosive seismic testing and more. These animals, as you write, depend on sounds in ways that we can only begin to comprehend. From, from what we know from research so far, how does the noise that we're making now impact whales in the ocean? Well, I think we're just coming to a full, more full understanding of the range mm -hmm. of effects that noise can have, anthropogenic noise can have on the undersea environment as a whole. I think most of us are by now familiar with the fact that shipping noise and seismic activity, seismic surveys, the construction of undersea infrastructure would interfere with the communication channels that uh, wildlife use to communicate to one another, but not just whales, also reef fish and other creatures that actually do have a lot of noise, and like natural calls that they use to communicate with each other. But, you know, the fact that really struck me in doing this research is that blue whales across the planet, not just in the Southern Ocean, but elsewhere as well, have dropped their voices by the equivalent of three white notes on a piano since the 1960s. And this is not just happening to the largest whales on the face of the planet, but also to fin whales and to a subspecies of blue whale called a pygmy blue whale as well. And it's happening in places where there's hardly any human noise whatsoever, as well as in places where we would expect there to be you know, the echoes of shipping traffic. And I was fascinated to learn that a part of this has to do perhaps with conservation, that as we've increased the populations of these animals by withstraining ourselves from hunting them, those animals no longer have to speak as loudly and happily, you know, when they speak more quietly, they speak at a deeper pitch because of the anatomy of the whale. But another theory is that ocean acidification, so the chemical change that's taking place in the ocean as a result of high levels of carbon dioxide being emitted into the atmosphere, this very microscopic, slight titration of seawater to a slightly higher level of acidity is having an overall amplification on any sound within the ocean. And therefore, the whales don't need to expend that much energy shouting to reach one another because the sound waves are carried more naturally further in an acidic environment. So on one hand, we, we have a theory that's sort of very positive as to why blue whale voices have changed. On the other hand, we have a theory that is potentially quite negative because as the oceans continue to absorb CO2, you have this effect where it, it's kind of subtly like turning up the volume dial as a person becomes deafer effectively. So every noise in the mm -hmm. ocean is going to become louder because it's sustained I suppose it's like putting down the sustain pedal on a piano. And yeah, I think, I think this was interesting that we've changed the voices of animals, even in places that we never go, where anthropogenic noise never extends to. And that was a kind of revelation to me that noise is just, it's not just about the sort of transitory movement of shipping, but it's also has kind of longer term effects as well. We know that shipping noise though does distress whales. And we know this because there've been tests done, one very provocative test or interesting test done on right whales in the wake of the 9-11 disaster showed that stress hormones in whales in the Bay of Fundy went down when there was a temporary suspension of um, large scale shipping because of the terrorist attacks. So, you know, in the quietitude of our own grief, uh, the whales were effectively given a reprieve from the distress of noise. You write at one point in the book about 
a different type of violence towards animals that's not necessarily violent at a global dispersed scale in the way of noise or global warming or pollution, but instead um, a violence that, that's kind of arisen with social media in a way. And you have a, you've written other fascinating essays on this as well about how originally when wildlife photography took off, it was seen as a terrific thing for the environmental movement and to inspire people to care about and to preserve wild animals. But recently, it's become a love that's almost smothering. And I'm wondering if you'll tell us a story of the baby porpoise in Argentina in 2017 and, and what happened when that porpoise met a mob of tourists. And how does this sort of violent love for animals as you, as you write about it relate to the other forms of violence that we're waging on them through environmental harm? Yeah, I really wanted to have a chapter in the book that dealt with digital nature because of course we don't just encounter the natural world now you know out in the ocean or in the mountainscapes or otherwise we're increasingly confecting nature online and having experiences of nature through mediums like social media and this story when I originally caught it in the news I have to say you know as many people who read it my, my heart really sank and that is that a beach off Argentina, there was a baby dolphin that had washed up. It was a particularly rare kind of dolphin. There are only 30,000 individuals of this species remaining. And it was apparently alive when it stranded. But a crowd came down and clearly in their eagerness to take photographs individually one by one with the animal, they passed it hand to hand. It perhaps became dehydrated, but at any length it died at the expense of people getting selfies with this creature. I was, as many of us, disgusted by that story and I think I um, read it initially as an act of cruelty. And then I spent some time looking at the images of the crowd and I suppose I could understand the impulse to want to pet the animal. I could understand that sort of cutification of another animal and it's sort of compelling charisma. And so I, it became a way for me to think more deeply about the protocols of grief that surround loss in the natural world. And I, when I look back upon the Perth whale beaching, it occurred to me that really there was a feeling on that beach and it was quite hard to put a finger on, but it was something like, here is the body to mourn. Like, we knew there was trouble out there. We knew that things were going bad in the ocean, but we lack the sensory apparatus to really apprehend it. We can't smell or taste or touch acidification. The dispersal of ocean plastic across a trans-hemispheric range is very hard to kind of feel empathetically or to kind of, you know, have a kind of embodied awareness of. And so when an animal as large as a whale washes up or when you know, this, this imperiled dolphin arrives at our feet, there's an impulse that's kind of like, I must personalise my connection to this grief, this immense grief. And here is this creature that will enable me to do this. And I guess I really, you know, th this example of the dolphin on the Argentinian beach was a way into thinking about that and a sort of opportunity to consider the in-between state that we find ourselves in, where we are aware that we're doing damage, but we're sort of lapped by the ability to measure that damage. And so the animals kind of bring a moral question to us. And I think that was, yeah, it was a way into thinking about the sort of trouble of charisma and the trouble of loving the natural world at a point at which it's disappearing before our eyes. Yeah, that passage was was really haunting and in, in the way that you described the way that we're we're impacting whales and and the natural world and and the impact that that's not just having on them but on our own levels of of stress and and grief and how we are internalizing our own environmental harms. And and you finish the book during the catastrophic 2019-2020 bushfire season in Australia. 
And those fires killed or, or displaced nearly 3 billion animals. And of course, we're now experiencing catastrophic fires of our own in, in the Western United States. And as we're recording this, there are reports of thousands and, and possibly many more birds you know, simply falling mm. from the sky out west. How is the way that we're seeing and feeling animals changing as these crises that are of our own making are playing out? And how does the specter of environmental change alter how we think and feel about whales and ourselves? Mm. You know, I think the natural world was once interpreted as being latent with meanings that had some kind of godly power to them. You know, this was the role of bestiaries and fables. In ancient Rome, fortune tellers were tasked to kind of pick through the entrails of animals to determine fortuitous dates for war or for marriage on behalf of their patrons. And so, you know, there's this old way of understanding animals as a kind of moral script. But of course, that fell away with the professionalization of the natural sciences and natural history. And to my mind, it's sort of returning to some extent there is a kind of hauntedness in wild animals today because I think what many people see as cryptic in animal behaviour, in the way that they occupy their habitats or disappear from their habitats, what's happening with animal bodies is to some extent symptomatic of human activity. I think that's the great fear that our ability to kind of identify damage is being lapped by our ability to do damage. And this is kind of humiliating, really, that, you know, ultimately what might turn out to be driving or motivating the animal, changing its behaviour, may not be some inspirited autonomy on the part of the animal, but may actually turn out to be something that's sort of humiliatingly familiar, some bit of rubble from the marketplace you know, there's an example in Fathoms of a whale that had swallowed a ice cream container from Denmark, a crisp packet from the UK, and a bag that had once been used to carry chicken pieces in the Ukraine. So it had, you know, objects from across the world all condensed into the belly of this one animal. And so I think we do look to animals now to see the limits of our own moral authority and to see the outer edge of our compassion as well. Yeah, and I, I think this is kind of what anchors the book. Like, how do we stay open to questions of possibility and hope and awe at a point where nature feels so haunted by human problems? You write in the book some about how we are affecting not just, you know, what's in the belly of these animals and in their flesh, but also seemingly their emotional lives. And you wrote an amazing piece for The Atlantic in 2019 that wasn't on whales, but it was on a similar topic on how pharmaceutical pollution is impacting animals of all sorts. And I was just stunned reading this piece that According to one study in Melbourne, a platypus living in a contaminated stream there could ingest more than half of a recommended adult daily dose of antidepressants, you write. Mm. And, and then you see this playing out with crabs who are exposed to antidepressants exhibiting risky behavior. And you write about how amphetamines are impacting insects in the wild. And this this was just uh, extraordinarily eye-opening to me because I think often in animal welfare, even people who you know spend their life focused on this and as advocates or in academics or in whatever the case is, focus when they think about whales or they think about animals and animal welfare, often on cases of, you know, of course, a whale kept in um, SeaWorld has animal welfare issues, but they often don't think about, you know, the medications that they're taking as an animal welfare issue in itself. And I'm, I'm curious from that perspective, what are some of the major ways or some of the ways that struck you most about how we're potentially impacting the whale's emotional lives? And how do people respond to that when you talk to readers or when you talk to folks studying this directly in their own emotions? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there is an irresolvable tension in the book, in a way, between wanting to honour the sentience and the otherness of whales and to, you know, in a scientifically informed way, admit the impossibility of knowing what goes on within a whale's brain, what sorts of grief, loss, 
joy it feels, but at the same time acknowledge the pleasure that resides in a human brain mm-hmm. to imagine <laughs> those <laughs> the, those those um, moments. And I guess the power of that connection as well. And then on the other side, you know, the book is also in its own way a kind of decomposition of the whale's body. It looks at the blubber, it looks at the whale's eyes, it looks at the baleens that are found inside its mouth. And each of these components within the animal it then treats as being its own kind of little ecological niche and exploring, you know, what trace of human industry resides there and then what also, you know, what other creatures are there, what other parasites are there, what other, you know, knock-on effects are there of what a whale eats in terms of the growth of kelp or the change in the atmosphere. So there is this kind of tension between, you know, wanting to access to some extent whale minds and then also wanting to admit the sort of ecological mm-hmm. connectedness of whale bodies so the question of emotion is is a tricky one i think that people do feel as though because whales have these large brains that are partitioned into hemispheres much like human brains are and they they have certain kind of neuron mirror neuron that humans have and because we can understand that there is to some extent whale culture because whale voices and songs have changed across the course of history and seem to also move in waves of popularity annually, seasonally around the globe. We like to think that there is a kind of, not just an emotional inner life, but an interconnected social, cultural life that this animal experiences. And I think it can bring us a lot of grief to see that that is fragmented because it reflects back to us what happens to our own lives when, you know, we are diminished by not Mm -hmm. having access to nature or being estranged from our own nature. Um, But it's a sort of irresolvable tension because we can only go so far as science gives us information and science on whales, of course, is is wonderful and, and deeply informed, perhaps even more so than many other marine species. But um, they will remain an evasive other being that we share the face of the planet with. You mentioned just now how the book kind of breaks down whales into some of their constituent parts. And, and one of the most um, amazing ones that you write about is, of course, the the eye of the whale. And there are many moments in the book where you're watching not just whales um, or what remains of, of whales, but also people watching the whales. And you write about the ooers, as you call them, who are who are on your whale watching journey off the coast of the town of Eden and and the one sided intimacy of whale watching. But yet our, our desire to sort of see ourselves magnified or, or recognized in the eye of the whale Can you describe that experience of whale watching and what it was like to, you know, observe the other people watching the whale, but also watching the whale watch you, or or maybe it wasn't even perceiving you there at all? It's a (laughs) wall of mirrors, really, isn't it? I mean, I think we we really wanted to be beheld by the whale. I think everyone seeks that sort of moment of interchange where you are picked up as some sort of significant animate entity in the world by another animal and so at the moment at which this ginormous mother humpback drew alongside the whaling ship and her eye was just above water and you could see her eyeball kind of click from left to right seeming to take in all these tourists (laughs) who were hanging off the edge of the boat with their cameras (laughs) and and you know exclaiming it loud at a whale so close you know like only a few meters away yeah, it was it was uh, an ecstatic encounter, and I I certainly was susceptible to it. I I felt incredibly, I felt like time slowed down in that moment. I felt genuinely beheld, and it was only later that I looked into whale vision that I came to understand that, of course, because whales live in this exquisitely tuned envelope of sound and are animals that hunt by sound and also live in very low light environments most of the time their vision is actually very comparatively poor. They see mostly in black and white 
And if they were looking up into the sky and looking directly at the sun, they would have barely perceived the human forms that were so, you know, lovingly reaching out to them. So this whale in particular. But I, in fact, there's one piece that got cut from the book, which I'll just quickly tell you about. It's an anecdote that I think really speaks to this. And it has to do with the invention of the microscope. So, you know, in the early days of inventing the microscope, scientists thought that the best way to innovate the lens of the microscope was really to understand the <laughs> animal eye. And so, you know, the more you knew about the science of the eye, the more accurate your lenses in a microscope could become. And so they sought ever larger eyes to look at because, of course, they thought, you know, with the weakest microscope, they better look at the largest eye. And then they could make a stronger microscope that could look at a slightly smaller eye and then a stronger yet microscope that might eventually get down to the level of looking at a mouse eye. So they begun by retrieving from the decks of whaling ships these huge eyes from sperm whales and humpback whales and fin whales. And that really kind of set the innovation of the microscope off. So there's a way in which whale vision is kind of implicated in our scientific technology in this really intimate way. We see the cellular level now based on innovation that arose out of, you know, our encounters with the large eyes of whales. I think that's just mm, magic. That's an amazing story. You tell a story in the book later on in the book too about how even sometimes when we're trying to do things to be helpful, it can have downstream consequences for animals that are quite profound. And I'm thinking of a story that you tell based in Argentina at the tip where southern right whales are being pecked to death now by kelp gulls, which is just a stunning thing to read about. And I'm wondering, can you tell us what's happening there and why do they think it's happening? You know, when I wrote this part of the book, I really, I think I had a emotional firewall mm. up to some extent because some of this material is just so mm. devastatingly sad. And I remember that I wrote an early draft of it and then I shared it with a friend of mine, Sophie Cunningham, who's also an Australian environmental writer, and she was incredibly devastated. You know, she wept reading this chapter and it, it just seeing that mirrored back to me, I realized that actually this, this really is one of the saddest, the saddest parts of the book. And it concerns um, the interaction between kelp gulls and southern right whales off the Patagonian coastline. Famously, it's one where Diane Ackerman wrote her Whale by Moonlight, no, Moon by Whale Light, forgive me, um, essay, which is a, a popular essay about whales from decades back. But now there's this terrible problem where during the 1990s, perhaps as early even as the late 80s, these kelp gulls that had begun by scavenging little bits of skin that were shed, naturally shed, by southern right whales and floated on the surface of the ocean, discovered that they could actually land on the backs of those whales and pick at the skin of the whales, not just rely on the natural shedding. And after a while, they learnt as well to dig under the skin and access this very rich, fatty blubber that you know, all whales are sort of exist within this envelope of fat that allows them to maintain an internal body temperature. And so the kelp gulls got to this and they clearly either taught their offspring or their offspring observed them doing this. And at the same time, the population of gulls really boomed because, well, simply because landfill, because there was just more waste on the land um, as the population in the area grew, as tourism grew. And so this large population of gulls <laughs> appeared and the situation got worse. It's now at the point where something like 90% of the whale population along that migration route have kind of raked out sections, some as large as dinner plates in their backs um, as a result of kelp harassment. The whales have changed their behaviour. So the female whales, when they come up for a breath, they, they arc their backs down. It's a behaviour called gallioning which effectively means that barely their blowhole and the very tips of their tails are showing through the surface of the water. So they're trying to avoid the gulls. And they also just waste a lot of energy trying to avoid these birds, energy that's sorely needed to kind of keep their bodies well and allow them to nurse their young. 
So yeah, we've seen really high calf mortality along that patch. It's very hard to prove that it is exclusively the result of the kelp gull harassment, but there are whales that are also getting pathogens uh, because of these injuries, I suppose, as well. And one theory also has held that the, because there's now a really good recycling program on land and a lot of landfill has gone undercover as well inside. And so the gulls are kind of looking for other sources of food where they might once have fed off rubbish tips um, and they're increasingly turning to the whales that go past. So we're in this unfortunate position where, you know, that the whales are these beloved native species, um, but the kelp gulls are native as well. They're not, they're not an introduced species, although their populations may be out of balance ecologically. And yeah, it's, it's a story about the balance between human activity, pest species, and these great symbols of environmental devotion. After spending you know, much of the book focused on these, the sort of the ultimate charismatic mega animal, the whale, you make a really fascinating and I think brilliant choice to focus on some of the least charismatic creatures we could imagine associated with the whale. I'm talking about whale lice and whale worms. These are creatures that are the opposite of charismatic and in some cases, truly downright revolting. Yet in your description, you get readers to, to really care and worry about these animals too, and to realize that you know, all of these organisms exist in a web of, with other organisms. And even these most disgusting or seemingly irksome of creatures really demands our attention. Uh, will you tell us about those parasites and sort of why did you choose to add that to the end of the book? Oh, I'm so glad that you leave the book with your empathy expanded to these horrible collection of, of creatures. <laughs> um, you know, I was really thinking about Gary Snyder, um, the American poet, has this wonderful line where he says that nature doesn't just belong to, you know, what we traditionally consider sublime nature that you find in American national parks or European mountain ranges it's also anaerobic it's nocturnal it's cannibalistic you know it belongs to this kind of dark sweaty underside of the world and it behooves us I suppose to imagine that that also is part of nature because it means that we're more sensitive I think to the local qualities of nature. It's not just about going out to have these ecstatic experiences of the wild. It's also, you know, integrated into um, a more proximate form of nature. And so in a way, for me, it was a bit of an exercise to see whether I myself could find a way to bring into my compassion, <laughs> the extent of my compassion, this, you know, strange set of barely embodied, eyeless, faceless creatures. So there's one particular worm that lives inside sperm whales that can grow to be the length of three queen-size mattresses. It's just, it's longer than the body of the whale itself and it lives inside the whale's uterus. It's deeply disgusting, <laughs> but it's animate. It's a life form that has found a niche within another life form. And then there are remora that are the sucker fish that live on the outside of the whale, which are also in turn responsible for, you know, they're the start line for a whole other food web. They are eaten by larger fish that are eaten then by larger fish and by sharks. And more microscopically, there are whale lice, tiny little crustaceans, they're not insects, and they live on every single whale and they are variegated in species between different species of whales. So a different whale lice lives on, whale louse rather, lives on a humpback than lives on a right whale. A different louse lives on a male sperm whale as against a female sperm whale. And they have encoded within their genes, to some extent, a history of the species. Because when whales encounter one another in large groups, they exchange large numbers of lice. And so amazingly, Scientists have looked at the genetic history of whale lice to discover, for example, when northern right whales as a species departed from southern right whales to find the evolutionary history of these animals. 
because at the point at which whale lice were exchanged, then clearly populations were still within touch. And yeah, I think, you know, it really learning about the ways in which animals themselves are habitats and they are a kind of zoological warehouse of all these other entities also brought me to an understanding of the fact that extinction can kind of take place without us even noticing on some occasions because scientists think that some of the earliest marine extinctions happened because we removed whale bodies out of the ocean for implication into human product and manufacturing and in doing so instigated the disappearance of some dependent parasitic organisms that didn't even have names hadn't even been seen or named so yeah I think you know it, it productively undoes the charisma of animals and it points to the fact that we are kind of implicated in the lives of many more organisms than the ones we love when we remove a whale from the sea we're also affecting the life of all these dependent organisms not only just the whale fall organisms but the ones inside it as well and there's a kind of worldliness in that I think I, I definitely left the book a lot more drawn to and compelled by uh, these whale lice, these these creatures and the primordial information that they house than I, I ever thought I would have been. So it was it was really a, an amazing section, um, and I'm I'm so glad that uh, you you explored those often forgotten creatures. You you close the book by describing two types of hauntedness. Uh, a hauntedness, as you write, that stems from regret of someone who sees what we've done to nature and effectively gives up, you know, effectively ignoring the harms that we could still avert and the life that we could still save. And then there's also a second type of hauntedness, one that's more action-oriented, a, a determination to never let go of protecting animals and nature, driven by that vision of what might still be lost in the future. How has this latter type of hauntedness saved whales in the past, and what role is it playing now? Mm. In terms of the role it's playing now... By the end of the book, what I really hope people walk away with is a sense in which, though the sea itself is not changeless in the way that we once believed that it was, we thought that the sea was kind of timeless and it would remain as it was ever so, now that we learn that it's not that way, we also need to recognise that our power to change is there too, that we are not condemned to be changeless as well. And I think, or I hope that, you know, while, while the extent of our influence is revealed to be vast, so then too is our capacity to withhold damage by very small actions. In the 1980s, to be pro-saving the whale <laughs> meant being anti-whaling. So you had to be against the governments who were whaling and you had to stand against whaling fleets. But to want to save the whale now, you're not just kind of a guard against those issues. You're also thinking about plastic pollution. You're thinking about the changing climate and the changing ecology. And so we're kind of like knitted together into a system with not just the whale, but also the planet's weather systems, what's happening to the sea on the most granular kind of chemical level, and what's happening to all of these organisms, not just the charismatic ones that we adore. And I think that that model is kind of bigger than the whale itself. It, it gives us, well, it, it augments our moral capacity. I think this is really the power of the whale at the end of the day. It's not just that it's the largest animal on the face of the planet, but that it coaxes us into a more expansive understanding of our humanity and of our capacity for change. Because in the 1980s, we did benevolently, in the end, pivot very quickly from seeing the whale as an industrial resource to viewing it as something that was worth saving. And it seems that that sort of global environmental citizenry is demanded by the challenges that we face today. And so revisiting the whale gives us an opportunity to reimagine what it might be to be part of that global community again. And to act, to really find within ourselves the capacity for small, incremental, but collective change. You close the book 
by writing that you can't count the number of times that someone has asked you, do you have hope? Mm -hmm. And you conclude that you do have hope. And I'm wondering if you'll, as a second to last question, we have one more after this, but if you'll read a a short portion um, from that part of the book about why you have hope and what that hope looks like. You say at one point previously that it's not a hope that you find externally, but a hope for something. I found this very moving. Mm, Yes, I I think that question of does hope come extrinsically or intrinsically is a theme of the book as well. Okay, so um, this part. I've lost count of how many times someone's asked me on the subject of this book, is there cause for optimism? Is there cause for hope? How do you sit with this terrible, sad news from the ocean day after day? So here, I want to clear some space to speak quite directly and plainly to those questions, as though you were sitting beside me. There is hope. A whale is a wonder, not because it's the world's biggest animal, but because it augments our moral capacity. A whale shows us it is possible to care for that which lies outside our immediate sphere of action, but within our sphere of influence. We care deeply, you and I, about the whale because it's distant. We care because it speaks to us of places we will not go, because it magnifies the reach of our humanity and reminds us of our collective ability to control ourselves and of our part in the planetary ecology. Because a whale is a reserve of awe and humility. You might take hope from the movement around plastic pollution, the shopping bag bans, the campaigns against drinking straws. But this, to me, looks like low-hanging fruit. What I mean to say is, there are many beings not proximate to ourselves that we will have cause to extend our compassion to in the decades to come. The future generations, the vulnerable people overseas, the creaturely life, And you might then ask yourself, how should I care for that which I do not know, that which I have never met? Do you care for the whale? Could you act on behalf of the whale? Being hopeful follows on from being useful. This has been my experience. And to be useful, it matters that you identify a part of the problem that you might see change in using the talents and resources that you possess. Hope is fellowship. Hope is in the doing. We may be the only species capable of imagining a future robbed of the wonder of encountering other species. And this knowledge, in the end, gives us cause to start. Thank you for that. To close, we ask each guest to recommend some works, whether books, articles, films, music, that have had a significant impact on how you understand and approach your work. And I'm especially interested to, to hear your answer on this, given the, the genre-defying nature of, of Fathoms. Um, will you please share some recommendations of works that have influenced you? Certainly. I will tell you about a wonderful Australian writer, Maria Tumarkin, who is a cultural critic, but also writes on the subject of ethics and morality. And I want to say that what Maria's really given me is a sense of genre hopping. <laughs> she is a she's a genre omnivore. Um, and you will find in her work a unique kind of inflected English that is so distinct to Maria, but also so contemporary and so vital and I can thoroughly recommend her book Axiomatic. It's a a book of criticism but it's also about morality and metaphor. So Maria certainly has been a, a really compelling writer and mentor of mine as well. And then, you know, in America, Robert Moore, who um, his book on trails um, was a real lodestar in my universe as well. He, I know, is working on a new book about trees, which will be out in time. Um, But on trails itself, it's just it's a exquisite weaving together of travelogue and 
um, science and, you know, just, just has such a humane sensibility about it. So I really admire Rob's work and he's also just such a wonderful literary citizen and a, a beautiful, a beautiful person. Yeah, so I think the other, the final book that I recommend may be a little outside this wheelhouse. It's not per se about animals or about the environment, but for those who love narrative nonfiction and are interested in work that kind of jumps from an engagement with objects, um, which some of Fathoms does, particularly the chapters on plastic pollution. Edmund DeWall's The Hair with Amber Eyes is a really gorgeous book. It's a book about Japan and about antiques, um, but it's more than that. It's also about what it means to pass on objects through heritage and it's a it's a, a family story as well. So that was also, I guess, a really um yeah, an influential book in a strange way, structurally on fathoms, because it just it it's a book with beautiful bones. <laughs> um and I needed that inspiration sometimes with this book because there's just so much anecdote and data in it that it needed also to have a strong structure in the middle. And reading Edmund de Waal was a good instruction in that. Rebecca Giggs, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's, um, I'm very grateful for the time and for these wonderful questions. I appreciate it. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Rebecca Giggs and her wonderful new book, Fathoms, The World in the Whale. Thanks for listening.